Welcome to the Cheyenne Vineyard Podcast, bringing you a message of hope for your everyday world. If you'd like to contact us, contact us at info at CheyenneVineyard.com. You can also find out more information about the Cheyenne Vineyard Church at CheyenneVineyard.com. Thank you and enjoy today's podcast. I want to just spend a few minutes reviewing some of the things I said last night, or last week rather. We uh, are not going to take time to go through a very thorough review, but let me just start by saying that we each have a need, a personal need, to be in relationships. We need to love, and we need to be loved. We need to know other people and be known by them. We need to receive ministry and give ministry. And as the body of Christ, collectively, we need relationships to join and knit us together, as it says in Ephesians 4.16. If you remember the analogy I shared with you about body parts lying all over the place, disconnected from each other, and completely unable to function, and essentially lifeless. When we're joined and knit together through the relationships that God gives us in the body, we can begin to function as a body and accomplish what God desires to do. Well, this week I want to talk about how we can develop the relationships God wants us to have. You know, I think the first thing is to realize that our culture is anti-relational. You know, I come home at night from work. I hit the garage door remote. I drive into my garage. Get out of my car. Hit the button to close the garage door and walk into my house. I don't say hello to anybody. Don't even see anybody because everybody else has done the same thing. We're all isolated from each other in our houses. Living in relationship is not something this culture is good at. In fact, I would say that it's countercultural to value people for who they are rather than what they can do for me. And isn't that the way that most of us approach relationships? What are you going to do for me? What's in it for me? So the first thing I think we need to do to develop relationships is to repent for living selfish, self-centered lives. Because that's where we all naturally are. That's the way we are in the flesh. Philippians 2, 3, and 4 By the way, I apologize for not having scriptures for you to read along with me, but if you want to look at it, it's Philippians chapter 2, verses 3 and 4. At least I'll give you something to take notes on. You can look at them later. The New American Standard Bible translates it this way. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind regard one another as more important than yourselves. Think about that. That's far more easily said than done. But it's what the Word of God tells us. Then he goes on in verse 4, Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. You know, Americans have made an idol of the fictional, rugged individual. The guy who can go out into the wilderness, hunt his own game, trap his own game, pick the berries, survive off the land, and come back a year later stronger and healthier than he was when he left. You know, that's the the fictional character. Now, granted, there are some people who are able to do that. But in reality... We need each other. 
We talked some about that last week. So the first thing is to repent for living selfish, self-centered lives. And by the way, the word repent does not mean to get all choked up and emotional. It means to turn around, to realize I'm going the wrong way. Change is needed. I need to make that change. That is repentance. So the second step is to ask God to show us who he wants us to have relationships with. Now, he may bring us into relationships with people that we don't even know yet. Okay? That's a possibility. But he also may show us that he wants relationships we already have to go deeper. Now, there are a lot of you whose names I do know, but I haven't spent one minute with you in the last week. Some of you, after the message last week, when I told you that I didn't even know some of your names, some of you came up and introduced yourselves, the Hudson family. I appreciate that. Okay? If I don't know your name, if you don't know that I know your name, I'd like you to introduce yourself to me because I want to get to know who you are. All right? We have dozens, if not hundreds, I mentioned this last week, we have dozens, if not hundreds, of acquaintances, people that we know superficially. I know I, I work at the federal courthouse as a court security officer, so I watch people come and go all the time. And oftentimes I will know the name of, a, of an employee that's coming in. So we'll say, hi, Bob, John, whoever that person is, but I don't know anything about them. They're merely acquaintances. So I believe God wants to take those relationships, some of those relationships, deeper. As we talked about last week, it's impossible for me to have a very close, intimate relationship, even with this smaller crowd that we have this morning. I can't do it. I don't have the physical time and the energy to be able to do it, let alone the emotional energy. So we need to be selective about who God wants us to develop relationships with. Also from last week, we talked about the fact that opening our hearts to each other requires authenticity or being real, who we really are, rather than putting on some facade, some mask, because we want to try to impress somebody. Authenticity and vulnerability. You know, I mentioned something last week that I, I don't have as close a relationship with this team of elders here in this church as I have had with another team that I was served on, served with another time. You know who's at fault for that? These guys love me. I know that. But I haven't chosen to open up as much as I could and should and that's part of my repentance that I'm going through right now. Bev and I are together repenting for what we have done in the last, I don't know how long it's been since we stepped away from those kinds of relationships and got too busy with life. You know, Jesus warned that the cares of this life would choke out the word so that it would become unfruitful. So we really need to be cautious of that and continually evaluate our lives and say, God, what do you want me to do here to live the way you want me to live? Now, there are many ways to develop relationships. Having somebody over to your home for a meal together, going for a bike ride together, working out together, doing sporting events. I asked uh, Danny and Patty if I could share just a real observation about them. I went into King Supers one day, and there's Patty with her son Daniel, and Danny's holding Daniel while he's sleeping on her shoulder. Well, I thought that was pretty cool. Now they're spending time together in the course of everyday life. Essentially, developing relationships may require that we, instead of doing everything alone, 
we invite people into our life to do things with us. I'll give you another example. I didn't ask Phil's permission, but I don't think he'll mind that a few months ago, before the sprinkler system started, I've never had one before. So I called Phil and said, hey, can you help me with this? Because I don't know what I'm doing. Well, he came over on a Saturday morning and spent about two hours helping me to get that thing running. Okay? So he had a servant heart, and he helped me. So there are all kinds of different ways that you can develop relationships. But today I really want to focus on small groups as an environment in which you can get to know people better and have an opportunity to, to develop relationships with them. Now, I said opportunity. The fact that you attend a small group does not mean you're going to develop relationships. I hate to say it, but the group that uh, Bev and I led at Phil and Rose Lizzo's home sometime back was kind of like that. We went to the group, we had our weekly meetings, but I didn't see much of those folks outside of that meeting. There's a book I've been reading called The Relational Way by Scott Bourne. One of the things he talks about is refrigerator rights. Who has refrigerator rights in your house? Only the occupants? Or do other people whom you have a close relationship with have the freedom to come in and grab something that they want out of that fridge because they're hungry or they're thirsty? Now, I want to take a look at the church and what the church is. Because I believe we have in this country and throughout Western society lost sight of what Scripture really teaches about what the church is. You know, Jesus said in Matthew 16, 18, I will build my church. But what was he talking about? There is no church building anywhere in the, in the world with his name on it that he physically built or that he even told his, his disciples to build during his lifetime here on earth. There's no record of him building a church building. There's no record of him establishing a church service. Of course, I didn't need to worry about 501c3 status <coughs> back then. But he didn't seek that. He didn't develop a board or an organizational structure. He didn't hire staff. What did he do? He chose 12 men. He called them into relationship with himself and because they were spending time with him, they were also spending time with each other and getting to know each other. And we see about some of the squabbles about who's going to be greatest in the kingdom and all this kind of stuff, all the disagreements and the conflict that happened among the disciples because they had relationship and they were beginning to be exposed to each other's personalities. The word church is translated from the Greek word ekklesia which means from or out of and called, calling, I calling. So a, a, better trans, a better, more easily understood translation of that is called out ones. We are the called out ones of God. We were singing earlier, I surrender to your call upon my life. The word referred to a body of citizens gathered to discuss the affairs of state. It was referring to people who were called together for a specific purpose. It never did refer to a physical building 
You know, if you think about it, a couple of illustrations I'll share with you. Years ago, I was involved with political affairs in Colorado, and I was a member of a party, and we had, of course, our county assemblies and our state assemblies where we chose the candidates that we wanted to represent the parties or the party that we were part of. That group of people had been called out of Weld County or the state of Colorado to conduct the business of the Republican Party. Oh, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to. <laughs> okay, I'm a Republican. <clears throat> Nothing to be ashamed of, it's just that we don't try to be partisan here in the fellowship. Um, but that's an illustration. That was a church, <laughs> an assembly. There's a denomination known as the Assemblies of God, and that simply means that these are people who have been called out of the society in which they live to form a body of people who are to do kingdom business. Now, one of the things that I think we need to understand, the one who called us, the eternal God, our Lord Jesus Christ, he called us to come out of society and form a body of people. And he says, where two or three are gathered together in my name, I am there in the midst of them. I want to say several things about that. One thing is, I'm not sure that we can experience the presence of Jesus unless we're gathered in his name. Now, the phrase in his name, you know, sometimes you'll hear people pray using the phrase in his name. I pray in the name of Jesus. Well, you know, that's not a magical incantation. That is saying, I pray in the authority of Jesus. I pray as a representative of Jesus Christ to do what he has told me, and it's by his spirit that I am to do here. That is praying in the name of Jesus. Gathering in the name of Jesus, similarly, does not just mean that the name Christian or Christ is over the, name of the, or over the building's doorway. I learned a long time ago, the name on the church building doesn't mean a thing. I was once a four-square pastor, and I was shocked at how much like a non-Pentecostal or non-charismatic church some of our four-square churches were. It's like, really? This is a four-square church? Okay. So what does it mean to gather in his name? It means that our primary purpose when we meet is to come into his presence and worship him. That is primary. If we don't come into his presence, why do we bother? It means we want him more than anything else. It means we desire to give him glory rather than doing anything that would glorify us. It means we are submitted to his authority as the head of his church, and we are seeking him and his kingdom first. We want to do what he is doing and say what he is saying. That's what Jesus said of his own life. I can do nothing except what I see the Father doing and what I hear the Father speaking. So Jesus had this incredible relationship, this oneness that I talked about last week with the Father. And out of that oneness, that unity, he knew what God wanted to do. And when we gather, that is what we need to do, to find out what God wants. Without the presence of God, we cannot function as his called out ones, and we will fall short of being the church. 
I'm going to say that again because it's important. And I don't think we readily grasp this. Without the presence of God, we cannot function as his called out ones, and we will fall short of being the church. So what are we if we're not the church? Without the presence of God, we're just a group of people with similar interests gathered to do religious things. Rather than being a people who have been called out by God to meet with him. You see, God, God has eternally wanted his people to meet with him, to worship him, to love him with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength. That is what God wants. And when we allow the Spirit of God to indwell us, we can then function as his body in the church and in the world. So we talked about the fact that God is not building, or Jesus never built a physical building. But if you read 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 9, Paul says, we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field. You are God's building. You. Now, the word you, often in the New Testament, is not singular. You know, in English, we have singular and plural forms. We don't have singular and plural forms for you, but in Greek, they did. And almost all the time, when the word you is used in the New Testament, it's plural. So you collectively are God's field. You collectively are God's building. Not you and you and you, not me, but together we are God's building. Now, Ephesians 2:19 through 22. It says, now therefore you are no longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household, or another word, another translation of that is family, of God. Remember we talked about that last week? The church is first of all family, secondly a body, thirdly an army. So here's another place where scripture tells us that we are part of the family of God. Having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone, in whom the whole building being fitted together grows into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together for a dwelling place of God in the Spirit. The New International Version says, a dwelling in which God lives by his Spirit. As I was reading this version, this passage, in verse 20, it talks about Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone and the apostles and prophets being the foundation of the church. And I realized Jesus said he would build his church, right? What was he doing when he chose the 12? He was laying the foundation for his church his called out ones. He's saying, I want you guys to be what the church is built on. I don't want to go down this road very far, but I will say this. There are still apostles and prophets today. And the sense in which the church the foundation of the church is laid upon them is a little different now than it was then because the first apostles wrote scripture. Today's apostles and prophets do not. They interpret scripture, they apply scripture, they help us to discern which scripture applies to which situation. But I believe the apostles and prophets today are necessary for the foundation of the church to be strong. Now, I think we've established that the church is not a physical building. Now, you look at this building from the outside, and you wouldn't think that this nice room 
is in here, would you? Okay. But whether it looks like this, or whether it looks like the Crystal Cathedral, or some cathedral in, in Europe, doesn't really matter. It's not a physical building we're concerned with. It's the people who come to meet in that place. But where did the early church meet? Well, in Acts chapter 2, verse 46, it says, So continuing daily with one accord in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they ate their food with gladness and simplicity of heart. Later on, Paul speaking to the Ephesian elders, and he's saying, How I kept back nothing that was helpful, but proclaimed, to, but proclaimed it to you and taught you publicly and from house to house. So the early church used public meetings and meetings in homes. Romans chapter 16, 3 through 5 says, Greet Prissa, which is, uh, I guess, a nickname for Priscilla, and Aquila. Greet Prissa and Aquila, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus, who risked their necks for my life, to whom not only I give thanks, but all the churches of the Gentiles give thanks as well. Greet also the church in their house. There are at least three other house churches mentioned in the New Testament that I could find. So, the churches met in homes. In Scott Bourne's book, The Relational Way, he writes, when Paul wrote his letters to the churches in the first century, he was writing to groups of people that met in homes. Archaeological evacuations, or excavations, or rather, <laughs> evacuations, archaeological excavations have revealed that typical homes in the first century were similar to homes today in that they would comfortably seat anywhere between 9 and 20 people. When Paul wrote the word church, or ecclesia in Greek, he was envisioning small groups of people who gathered as a connected community in homes. His mental images of church and ours are vastly different after 2,000 years of development. See, we tend not to look at a small group of people as a church. If it's not at least 100 people, I mean... Come to think of it, we don't have 100 people here this morning. Okay? Size does not determine whether or not a group of people is the church. Scott also writes, Roman Emperor Constantine converted to Christianity in 313 A.D., his Edict of Milan marked the end of the persecution of Christians and the promotion of the church by the emperor. You see, up to that time, Christians had been persecuted. It may have been dangerous to meet in public. You don't want to have a meeting every Sabbath at 10 o'clock in the morning at a known location where the authorities can come and arrest you, haul you off to prison. Instead, they wanted to meet in a more private setting where they may not have been found out as easily. Larry Kreider, in his book, House to House, quotes another guy by the name of James Rutz from his book, The Open Church. And James Rutz says, It was in 323 A.D., almost 300 years after the birth of the church, that Christians first met in something we now call a church building. For all 300 years before that, the church met in living rooms. Constantine built these assembly buildings for Christians, not only in Constantinople, but also in Rome, Jerusalem, and in many parts of Italy, all between 323 and 327 A.D., this then triggered a massive church-building fad in large cities all over the empire. 
That eliminated the need for small groups to meet in homes. And I would submit to you that it dramatically changed what happened when the church met. If you think about it this morning, what are you doing? You're all sitting there looking at the back of somebody else's head. Listening to one guy talk. We're going to see in a few minutes that that's not what the New Testament church did. So what did happen in the house churches that met there for the first 300 years? Again, going back to Acts chapter 2, which is where the church was born, it says they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine or teaching and fellowship in the breaking of bread, which means the Lord's Supper, and in prayers. So the teaching of the word, fellowship, remember we talked about that last week, sharing in common. Together we share the life of Christ. We share the life of God because God, by his spirit, indwells you. And as you allow the spirit of God to come out of you, to flow out of you to me, we have fellowship with each other. The apostles' teaching, fellowship, the Lord's Supper, and prayer. Another reference that I think is very helpful to understand what happened is 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 26 where it says, how is it then, brethren, whenever you come together or assemble, each of you, the NIV says everyone, has a psalm, has a teaching, has a tongue, has a revelation, or an interpretation. Let all things be done for edification. Remember Jerry's word? There it is, edification. You see, everything that happens when we meet as a church, whether it's in this large group setting or in a small group setting, is to build up and strengthen each other, to edify each other. But what does this say? Each of you, everyone, has a psalm, a teaching, a tongue, a revelation, or an interpretation. Now, did you do that this morning? No. And you probably can't, okay? Just because of the way this meeting is structured. Okay, we come together, we listen to Marty and the worship team lead us. By the way, thank you very much. You guys are doing a great job. You know, they have an anointing from God to lead the rest of us into, into worship, into the presence of God. And I'm grateful for that. Well, let me tell you, I've been in homes <clears throat> it's hard to talk about this one because it was such a deep and profound experience. But I went downstairs in somebody's basement to their family room one night in a small group setting. They put on a CD. And I found myself on the floor, face on the floor, worshiping God because God was there. Thank God for anointed worship teams. There have been times when I've come to a meeting and I've been about as far from God as you can get. My heart was cold. There was sin in my life. There was garbage going on. I wasn't focused on Jesus, and thanks to the worship team, God got my heart again. Okay, so thank God for them. How much better would it be, though, if I were to come each Sunday and every time I met with fellow believers with my heart full of God? You know, Psalm 103 says, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me, bless his holy name. You see, I believe the quality of our worship corporately has a great deal to do with the quality of our life in God. 
and the quality of what we've been thinking on. What is in you? Is everything in you praise and blessing God? If it's not, then why do we allow it in our lives? <laughs> you know, I, I ask myself that question as well. Why do I put up with this stuff? Okay. But you see, in the early church, each of you could have a teaching. Now, it's not going to be a one-hour teaching. I have often found teaching, spirit-inspired teaching, comes in short segments. A sentence. Maybe a paragraph. But not usually an hour-long message. Because the Spirit of God wants to speak directly and when he wants to teach somebody, he knows exactly what he wants to say. Some of us, when we get up in front of a group of people, we kind of stumble and wander around, and eventually we might get there. But if God has put something on your heart as a teaching that somebody really needs to hear, it's probably going to be succinct, brief, concise, to the point and it's going to hit the mark. It's going to have the impact that God wants it to have. And of course, then it talks about other gifts of the Spirit, actually. Tongues, interpretation, revelation, referring to prophetic words, words of knowledge, words of wisdom. But the point here is that they could all be involved it didn't all revolve around one man. See, the early church didn't rely on pastor-led churches. There were apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers who worked as teams to meet the needs of the body. You know, I've been a pastor before in a really small church. You know, and sadly, we have some really unrealistic expectations of our pastors. I was expected not only to teach, but also to lead worship, to clean the toilets, shovel the sidewalks, to help paint the building. You know what I'm saying? We expect our pastors, our leaders, to do things that the Bible does not tell them to do. Now, another thing that happened, if you remember last week, I mentioned the one another's. There are scriptures that talk to us about serve one another, forgive one another, teach one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, admonish one another, comfort one another, edify or build up one another, exhort one another. Consider one another in order to stir up love and good works. James 5.16 says, Confess your faults to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. 1 Peter 4.10 talks about ministering your gift that God has given you to others in the body. You see, Paul wrote most of the things I just read. James was one of them. Peter was one of them. But when, when they wrote to the church, they were writing to whom? To the 30,000 people in, that met in a stadium? No. To perhaps several hundred house churches throughout a city. So these one another's could be practiced in that context. And every member of the body was allowed and encouraged to serve the other members of the body. It was not a spectator sport. Now the danger of having only large group meetings is that we cannot all actively participate in ministry to one another. And we come to rely on a few within the church to do the ministry God has called us to do. We develop an attitude. Well, that's what we pay him for. Really? 
I give to these guys because I love them and I want them to be free to do what God's called them to do. That's it. God wants every one of us to do the work he has called us to do. But the mindset that we pay the staff to do the work of the ministry has resulted in effectively limiting the workforce of the church to a small percentage of the body, which keeps us from having the impact that God desires us to have. If God can convince a group of 100 people that only two of them are to do the work of the ministry, and the rest of us are just to support them and encourage them, how much is going to get done? If we look at Ephesians chapter 4, verses 11 and 12, it says, Jesus Christ, he himself, gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, and some pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints, for the work of ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. Now what we see there is that these five types of ministries are to equip everybody else to do the work that they have been called to do. Because every one of us in this room has been called by God into, number one, fellowship with him. But number two, he has given us gifts, talents, abilities, personalities that he is wanting to use in the world around us. But we need to be equipped for the ministry that God has called us to. I want to submit to you that if we would each go before God and say, Father, what do you really want from me? Who do you want me to have relationship with? Who do you want me to serve, to minister to, to love? As we step out and attempt to do the things that God has called us to do, we're going to find out where we need to be equipped. And we're going to come running to people like Jay and Randy and say, help, I tried this, it didn't work. I need to be taught. I need to be equipped. But if we have the mentality that our responsibility is to come here on Sunday morning Maybe drop a few bucks in the plate or in the offering bucket there. You know, don't, don't talk bad about the church. Don't gossip, you know. It's all those negative things. Don't do all those things. If that's all that we have in our mind is, is what being a good member of the church is, we're going to fall far short of what this church is supposed to be. Remember last week we talked about we are members of one another. We are members of the body and what you have, I need. What you need, I might have, if somebody else doesn't. Okay? We need each other to get this job done. I think it's okay to share this. You know, sometimes I look at God's desire to bring revival to his church. And along with revival, which generally means bringing life back to those who had it at one time, left it, and now realize they need it. So they come back to God, cry out with all their hearts and say, God, I need you. I want you in my life. I can't live this way. But along with that, when we do the work that God has called us to do, people will come into the kingdom. What happened to the early church? Peter gets up and preaches a message. 3,000 people come to Jesus. 
Now, what would we do with 3,000 people? How are we going to prepare? How are we going to care for those people? How are we going to disciple them, help them grow up and become mature men and women of God? Discipleship does not happen, does not occur from the platform. Great teaching may. I'm grateful for Jay. He does a great job of teaching. But discipleship means that you show somebody what needs to happen, show them how it's done, walk them through it as they do it, release them to do it themselves while you watch, call them back together and say, well, that was really good. And here's an area that needs a little improvement. Okay, discipleship requires relationship. Discipleship happens one-on-one or in small groups, not in large groups. Now, Jesus, true, he did model feeding the 5,000, feeding the 3,000. He modeled healing the sick, casting out demons, raising the dead, cleansing lepers, changing water to wine. He modeled all of that. And one thing about Jesus, you know, he would... He had 12 guys we've talked about, but within that 12, there was a circle of three that he really poured his heart into. And I'm sharing this with you because you may find that you want to structure your life in a similar way. There may be only three that you're really close with. There may be a dozen that you're pretty close with. There may be... 72, or whatever we have on a particular Sunday, that you're willing to share your life with here. You know, one thing that I was struck by, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Paul's recounting. Let me turn there. I don't have it in my notes, so let me just read it to you. What I'm trying to tell you is that The ministry of Jesus grew from the 12 he had chosen to the 72 that he sent out to the 120 that were in the upper room before Pentecost. But in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Paul says this, For what I received I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Peter, and then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brethren at the same time. So there were 500 brethren by that time. We often don't think much about that. But if 500 people took six people each into their homes to disciple them, fellowship with them, teach them the apostles' doctrine, share the Lord's Supper with them, pray with them, yeah, I think the job could get done. We could see that 3,000 people discipled and matured into saints that God could use. Conversely, if we don't have people who are prepared to take people into their homes and minister to them, I sometimes ask myself, why should God trust a church that's unprepared? Why should God give us new converts if we're not going to take care of them? That's a difficult question for me. But it's one that I think we need to deal with. You know, lastly, one last scripture. I mentioned earlier that the the early church met in small groups partially because of persecution. 
as I said last week, I don't think you can really do the one another's in a large group context anyway. So if you're going to follow the one another scriptures, it makes sense to have a small group. But Jesus, in Matthew chapter 24, verse 9 says, Then you will be handed over to be persecuted and put to death. And you will be hated by all nations because of me. Now, I'm not really looking forward to that. But you know what? It's coming. If you've got eyes to see, you can see that our culture is already hating Christians. There are many ways. I just read, heard recently of an elementary school kid who was kicked out of his school because he had said to, some, to another student who sneezed, bless you. Excuse me? Whatever happened when our founding fathers said the Bible was the best textbook to be used in schools to get us to this point where we can't even mention God in school? What I'm saying to you is persecution's coming. It's coming. I don't know when. It may or may not be in our lifetimes. I don't know. But I'll tell you what, I would like to be among people who know and love God and know and love me when that time comes. Not to mention that we're less likely to be found by the authorities and hauled off to be executed or imprisoned. Now, on a lighter note, <laughs> Why do we call, here at this church, why do we call our small groups life groups? Just a reminder. Number one, we share God's life together. Number two, we share our lives with each other, which means the good times and the hard times. The celebrations, the parties, graduations, meals together, illnesses, hospitalizations, deaths in the family, marital problems. You know, when you get into small group life, sometimes you find that people's lives are really a mess. I've done some marital counseling as a result of uh, small group relationships. I remember going to one guy's home when his wife left him. crying out, why? What happened? Barely prevented him from committing suicide. Life is good. It's better when it's shared. And when you can rescue somebody from hell or from suicide, from marital problems, from financial problems, by applying the word of God, that's what I think God wants for us, is to get into each other's lives in such a way that we can be redemptive. So where do we go with all this? I used to sit under a pastor who used to say, so what? I've talked to you for 45 minutes or whatever, but so what? What are you going to do with this? Well, the first thing is I want you to know that my concern is not that you get involved in a small group necessarily. It's that you become joined and knitted together in relationships with other people in this body so that you can experience the life of God and fulfill your personal calling as well as fulfilling God's calling on this church. God has plans for this place that far exceed anything we have yet seen.
Okay. I wasn't going to do this, but if I can get through it, I'll tell you about the first time I walked into this room. While it was still under construction, Jay opened one of the doors, and I stepped in and looked, and I saw this room packed with people. And not just warm bodies, but people who were engaging God. There was passion in the room. There was love for God. It was vibrant. Hands were raised. People were kneeling. God's presence was here. And I had a sense that the people I was seeing were not just the congregation, but were actually leaders in the congregation. The church had grown so much that we couldn't meet here altogether. But we were still using this place for leaders to come. Now, I want that to happen. But it's not going to happen unless we get really serious with God and say, God, where are you taking me? Because I have a part in this. All right. Well, you can do whatever you want to develop the relationships God wants you to have. Small group life is not a commandment, it's an invitation. But I would encourage you to join a life group this next month. I would encourage you to find a leader that you want to learn from and join their group. In fact, if I could, could I ask those who are leading groups this next month to stand? Okay. John, Art, and Elizabeth. Okay, and I'll add that, thank you. I'll add myself to that list. Bev and I will start a group on Friday nights at 6.30 at our home starting on the 12th. Um, there may be other groups that arise as well. But I just want to tell you, if you're not involved in relationships that you can receive ministry and give ministry in, you're really missing what God has for you. I can't begin to, com to express how much more rich my life has been because of those kinds of relationships. So I encourage you, find a group and get involved. Or find another way to develop relationships and fulfill God's calling on your life. Okay? I think I'm done. You know, God wants to heal and he wants to strengthen you. So as we um, get ready to leave here this morning, I would encourage you not to leave if you have a need. We have ministry teams here because we love you. And we want to see you whole. We want to see you healthy. We want to see you prosper. We want you to be blessed. So if you have a need this morning, please come up and allow the ministry team to minister to you. I hope what I've shared this morning has made sense. 
And I hope that it's been helpful. I don't just get up here to talk, hear myself talk. I'm not that impressed with myself. But I really want the life of God to pervade this place in our lives. Okay? So, if you have questions, I'll be glad to talk with you. Um, God bless you all. Have a good week. I'll remember next week is our carrying dinner, I believe. So, come and have some fellowship. Practice one of some of the one another's. Okay? God bless you all.